Hi, I'm James Anderson Foster, and you're listening to Who's Afraid, a weekly podcast of awesome serialized horror fiction written by amazing authors, performed for you by professional narrators, and brought to you by SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Chapter 10 Oh, God, no, Susan moaned. The Pine Lakes region was dotted with bodies of water, scenic beaches, and nature trails. The resort was full of wildlife. Deer and squirrels would come right up to the cabin and eat out of your hand. It was one of the region's most appealing qualities. Before the resort closed for the winter, one was given the chance to behold nature's beauty in action as the trees turned gold and the frosty air painted the flora in a shiny coating of silver. There was no evidence of nature's beauty here. The surrounding forest was dead and black. Desiccated leaves clung to twisted branches, rasping harshly in the sour breeze. The sky had turned crimson. Fat storm clouds floated overhead like giant bags full of blood. The bank of the lake was littered with detritus, floating in black water that lapped the sand in thick, foamy curds. As far as the eye could see, corpses floated closely together, a human blanket undulating on the water's surface like a melting ice flow. The air was thick with the foul, gassy stink of decay, and clouds of fat flies buzzed lazily over putrefying flesh. What is this? Susan asked. A dumping ground, Ted replied. The smell! He covered his mouth and nose with his arm, breathing shallowly. The sea of bodies glistened with rainwater. Arms and legs flopped around lifelessly. Mouths hung open in silent screams. Milky eyes stared unseeing into the sky, filling with metallic-smelling water. Susan was suddenly relieved that the flashlight had given up the ghost. This was one atrocity that didn't need further illumination. There's a path, Susan pointed. Maybe it leads back to the road. What if Jack and his crazies are up there waiting? Do we have a choice? No, I guess we don't. Besides, anything is better than this. Her words were interrupted by a harsh gasp at her feet. A face broke the surface of the water and gulped in the noxious air. The woman got to her knees, choking out gouts of filmy water and splashing frantically in the thick, sludgy muck at the water's edge. Help me, the woman spluttered. Julie, Ted shouted. How many other naked blondes have you seen today? She spit. Ted waded into the lake and grabbed Julie by the arm, pulling her onto the rocky shore where she collapsed and coughed the remains of the slimy water from her lungs. You're alive, Susan said. Am I? It's getting harder and harder to tell. Ted knelt beside her and put a hand on the clammy flesh of her abdomen. How did you get out of there? We thought you were gone. We saw that thing grab you. I'm not sure, she coughed. One minute it had me, and the next I was being flushed through the sewer like all the other shit. The things I saw down there, she sobbed. You don't even want to know. Can you stand? Susan asked. We can't hang around here. You're fucking brilliant, she said. I was just getting comfortable. 
who brought the picnic basket. I'm sorry, Susan began. No, Julie interrupted. I'm sorry, you didn't deserve that. Julie sat up with a groan as Ted and Susan grabbed her arms and helped her to her feet. Jesus Christ, Julie hissed, looking out over the sea of bodies, out of the frying pan and into the lake. Come on, Ted said, there's a path. A path to what? How do we know it won't lead us to another nightmare? We don't, Susan said, but we're running out of options. I need to rest, Julie said. I can't go any further. Not yet. We can sit for a few minutes, Ted said. But that's it. We're not staying here. Julie nodded and allowed them to lead her into the forest. Julie spied a fallen tree and sat with a grunt, wiping thick film from her arms and legs. It plopped to the forest floor like jelly. Do you think we're ever going to reach the resort? Julie asked. I mean, do you really believe there's a way out? I do, Ted assured. I have to. Julie nodded sadly. What if I'm not allowed in? Allowed in? What? Because you're naked and... No, not because I'm naked, Ted. She sighed deeply and collapsed into herself. What if I don't deserve to be saved? What? You're talking nonsense, Susan said. Of course you deserve to be saved. We all do. I'm not so sure. I've done some terrible things. We've all done terrible things, Ted said. That doesn't mean we need to punish ourselves for them. Ted looked at Susan questioningly. Not like the things I've done. I'm an awful person. Being locked in a cage is more than I deserve. Now come on, Susan said. No one deserves this. How can you even think that? Julie sucked in a deep breath and held it as tears leaked down her face. She brushed wet hair from her forehead and looked up at them with the saddest, most tortured stare they'd ever seen. Her pain was all-consuming. It washed over them like high tide. For five minutes, Julie wept loudly, completely inconsolable, trapped in some private torment. When her cries died, her eyes cleared, and she sat up straight. She wiped snot from her upper lip and took a deep breath. I've only ever told this story to Jack and Kathy, she said, and I'll understand if you leave me behind. We're not going to leave you, Ted said. Don't say that. Not yet. Let me get this out first. Then you can make that decision. Julie, Susan soothed. Nothing can be so bad that we'd leave you behind. Well, I guess we're going to find out. When I was 15, I had my life pretty much together. Up until then, I was a smart kid, full of life, a good student. My bedroom was papered with scholastic awards, attendance honors, trophies from softball and swimming. Damn, I was a great swimmer. Like a Neil, I just slid through the water. I was at every meet. I cleaned house on the 500-meter freestyle, and my backstroke was a thing of beauty. My swim coach was sure I'd be a contender for the Olympics someday. And I believed it. Every word. It was my ticket out of Lebanon County. I didn't hate where I lived, don't get me wrong. But I didn't want to be there my entire life. I think your brain starts to atrophy the longer you stay in one place. I had my goals set higher than that. In the summer of 88, my father was diagnosed with stage 4 prostate cancer. I didn't know it at the time 
He didn't want me to, but there was no disguising the fact that something was terribly wrong. He lost so much weight, and his skin turned yellow and brittle like old newspaper. My mother finally told me what was going on four months after his diagnosis, and two weeks before he died in their bed. There was nothing I could do, nothing anyone could do by then. I didn't blame my mother for not telling me. I knew she was trying to protect me. But sometimes the choices parents make to protect their children actually hurt them in the long run. When I returned to school, I didn't fit in anymore. I could see the way the other girls looked at me, like I was damaged goods, the girl with the dead dad. There's no long, involved story about how I slowly faded into the background and let my grade slip. It happened overnight. I was kicked off the swim team, and I was fine with it. I was dying out there, like an injured seal floundering around with a busted flipper. In no time at all, it was like I'd completely forgotten how to swim. My coach watched helplessly, and I'd hear him talking to other teachers about me. She was gifted. A real champion swimmer. It must be drugs. The usual shit. I wasn't on drugs. It never crossed my mind until I heard him talking about it. All of a sudden, I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. Not all of my friends were straight edge. I knew that, but I let them do their thing and they let me do mine. The first time I asked my friend Charlene for a hit off her joint, I think I nearly killed her. She choked on it for a minute or two before passing it to me, her face purple from hacking. I was a terrible pot smoker. I coughed out more than I inhaled. But just like everything else, practice makes perfect. By Christmas break, I was a full-blown pothead. I couldn't survive without it. I'd smoke a half ounce over the weekend, every weekend, sometimes more depending on who was holding. I became the party girl. I lost some friends but gained others. It was those others that opened my eyes to pills and powders. How did I live my life not knowing this stuff was out there? I thought I'd rediscovered some lost art. My junior year in high school was a blur. I'm not sure how I got there most of the time. I was still high from the night before. I'd take something to perk me up in time for class, ride the high as long as it would last, and hit the bathroom a few times a day to get that extra bump I needed to see me through the day. Eventually, it wore off. I was doing more and more and getting less. My grades slipped even further, and by the time I started my senior year, I was on to the harder stuff. I started dabbling in needles. My problem there was that I hated wearing long sleeves, so by the time my arms started showing signs of my vice, I decided to stop going to school altogether. Junkies don't feel self-conscious in front of other junkies. We'd often show off our tracks like they were war medals. I didn't realize how fucked up that was at the time. By then, all my old friends were gone, so I started making friends with all the wrong people to replace them. The problem with heroin, other than the obvious, is you can never get enough. You'd jump off a bridge to chase that dragon. I stole money from my mother, who at that point was in her own addiction of self-pity and willful ignorance. She knew what was going on. She blamed herself for it, for how she treated the situation with my father. But I wasn't in the game of feeling bad for others' mistakes. I felt bad enough for my own. Once the money ran out, I found other ways to get my fix. Sex and blowjobs would earn me enough to get by some days. Threesomes, gangbangs, 
I did whatever I needed to do, and I was so far into my addiction that I didn't realize there was anything wrong with my behavior. The year I was meant to graduate, 1990, started with the death of my mother. She burned herself out, fed into her depression, slowly withered away until there was nothing left to hold on to. Was it my fault? I don't know. I'm sure I didn't help. My father's death put her in the ground, but my addictions likely shoveled the dirt over the coffin. On Valentine's Day, she hung herself from the rafters with an extension cord. I found her a week later. I called the police, left the house, and never went back. I didn't go to her funeral. Don't even know where she's buried. I assume my aunt took care of that. Once my mom was gone, I really hit it hard. The drug was the only thing I was living for, and it was getting harder and harder to find guys willing to pay me for my services. I became the problem, the untouchable. I moved in with a guy, Jay Bingham, not because I love him, but because he fed me what I needed. We walked the road of mutual destruction, content in knowing we didn't have to do it alone. I found out in July that I was pregnant. Jay had knocked me up, just like he'd knocked up countless others. To celebrate, we tied each other off and got higher than we've ever been. I came too, but Jay didn't. Jay never did anything again. He died on a stained recliner with foam bubbling from his lips. I knew I'd reached the bottom of the barrel. I walked away from Jay. No one cares about another dead junkie. I disappeared into the night like a ghost and never looked back. I got clean, but only after leaving two dead bodies in my wake. I got clean by myself. I got a job, rented a small apartment, watched my tummy get bigger and bigger as the spark of life inside me ignited into a raging fire. I prayed the kid wouldn't be another victim of my bad choices. I gave birth to an absolutely beautiful seven-pound baby boy. Every finger and toe was another blessing. I swear when they handed him to me, he looked up with those gorgeous blue eyes and he smiled. Everything was going to be okay. Nothing bad could exist in a world with such perfection. I named him Jacob after my father. I showered him with gifts, at least as much as I could on a waitress's wage. The owner of the diner, Rita, watched Jacob when I worked. She was a wonderful woman, a real angel. Didn't charge me a dime. She saw the fading scars. She knew I was walking a tightrope but she gave me the chance I needed to get my shit together. She didn't ask questions. I repaid her by skipping out early one night to hang out with the guy I'd met at the diner. He was cute. I was always a sucker for a cute face. The appeal was in the anonymity. He didn't know about my past, and he didn't ask questions. I knocked on Rita's door at three in the morning and knew I'd crossed a line. She asked me if I'd gotten high. I couldn't blame her. It's the first thing I'd think if I was in her shoes. In no uncertain terms, she warned me if it ever happened again, I'd not only be out of a job, but she'd make sure I'd never see Jacob again. After some time, I explained my past to her. She nodded in all the right places. It was a story she'd heard before, one she was familiar with. I tried telling her I'd met someone, someone I enjoyed spending time with, and she gave me the rope to hang myself. The man's name was Cameron. We just clicked. Rita allowed me twice a month where she'd watch Jacob so I could meet Cam. A few times I took Jacob along. 
If this was going to be anything, Cam had to know my baby boy. I was very adamant about it. One Saturday evening, Cam told me to let Rita watch Jacob, said he had a surprise for me. I was skeptical, but curious. I left Jacob with Rita and drove over to Cam's apartment. And wouldn't you know it, my surprise came in the shape of a syringe filled with clear liquid. I'd been clean for a year at that point, and it took me ten minutes of half-hearted arguing to tie off my arm and run into my demon's embrace. That particular demon doesn't take no for an answer. Not like I really tried to fight. We welcomed each other with open arms. I went to pick up Jacob two days later. I fed Rita lies she didn't believe. She saw it in my eyes, heard the tremor in my voice. I came at her like a honey badger. I screamed, ranted, threatened to call the police. When that didn't work, I hit her, punched her right in the face. She was in her mid-sixties. It didn't take much. She went down and didn't get back up. I grabbed my son, buckled him into his car seat, and tore out of her driveway like the princes of hell were on my tail. I had no idea if I'd killed her. All I could think of was getting as far away as possible. I thought of going to Cameron's place and decided against it. Someone would find me there, and at that moment, I didn't want to be found. Not ever again. I drove and drove and drove. I had no idea where I was going, but as long as there was road to follow, I pointed the car forward and kept my foot on the gas. Instead of feeling better, I started feeling worse. The drug was wearing off. My hands were starting to shake, and Jacob was in the back seat screaming his little head off, likely hungry, likely wet. He wouldn't stop screaming. It went right through me. It was like a toothache, like raw nerves pounding signals deep into my skull. It went on for miles. Eventually, it just became part of the drone that swirled in my head. I blocked it out. I kept my hands on the wheel and tore up the miles, praying for another fix, anything to make it all go away. I turned onto a side road. My eyes were getting foggy and I didn't want to risk getting into an accident. I just needed to stop for a bit, rest, clear my head. The road wound down into the woods, narrowed and grew darker as I left the lights of town behind. By then, I was on autopilot. I saw the world passing by out my window, but I was oblivious to it. The road opened into a wide, empty parking lot, and at the far end was a boat launch. I didn't know I was going to do it until the car splashed down twenty feet from shore. The car filled quickly. I put my head back and listened to Jacob wailing in the back seat, and I wondered how my life had come to that moment. That little boy was the only thing I had in the world. And there I was, water gurgling up through the floor as the car slipped beneath the surface. I remember thinking of some stupid movie I'd seen once where a submarine gets depth-charged and sinks, only to leave the crew struggling inside, trapped by rising water. Isn't it funny, the stupid shit your mind latches onto in moments of crisis? Jacob was still screaming. I can't imagine how terrified that poor boy must have been, but my mind was a million miles away. I reached into the back seat and grabbed his pudgy little fingers, and this amazing calm came over him. He sniffled, 
looked at me, and giggled. The sweetest sound you can imagine. He clutched my hand tighter and shook it, kicking his tiny legs and jumping around in his seat. In that final minute before the car filled with water, he was happy. Maybe he knew. Maybe he was ready for it to be over just as much as I was. What was I ever going to be able to do for him? A junkie. I held my breath and let the water take me. Jacob thrashed and kicked and reached out for me in the dark, wanted me to take his pain away. That was all he ever had, and that's a shame when you think about it. If children could choose their parents, I'd be the last in line. Jacob stopped moving, and in that moment my world exploded. What the fuck was I doing? How could I punish that sweet little boy for my lifetime of mistakes? My lungs burned from lack of oxygen, and something in my head snapped, like a light going on in a dark closet. I saw everything clearly for the first time in years. How I could clean up my act. How I could be a good mother to Jacob and give him the attention and love he deserved. I rolled the window down and shot from the car like a torpedo. Somewhere inside of me was the teenage swimming prodigy that had once been. I reached the surface in seconds, treading water, filling my lungs with precious air. I was going back down to save my son. There was no way I'd be able to live with myself knowing what I'd done. I'd become something I hated. And although it took years to lose myself in the trappings of teenage burnout, it took only seconds to see there was another way. The water wasn't very deep where the car was. Fifteen feet, twenty at most. I dove and felt around in the dark. I couldn't see anything. If I could just find the car, my mind would figure out the rest. But all I came up with were handfuls of the lake bottom. I scoured the ground in every direction until my lungs were ready to burst before coming back up and doing it again. I'd gotten so disoriented, I wasn't sure if I was even looking in the right place. I searched and searched until I was utterly exhausted. I couldn't keep my head above the surface anymore. What had I done? I let my little boy drown. Not just let him drown, but led him right to the door and walked him inside. I collapsed on the beach, shivering, empty, broken. I deserved to be the one floating down there in the dark, not him, not that precious little boy with so much life left to give. I never thought I'd stop crying. The next morning dawned cold and gray, my prayers for death went unanswered. I didn't get an easy way out. Jacob didn't have a choice, so why should I? I thought of killing myself, walking into the lake and letting the water take me away, joined my baby boy in his watery grave. When I started walking, it wasn't toward the lake, but away from it. My feet carried me away from the scene of my heinous crime, but no matter how far I walked, I knew there was no way to outrun what I'd done. I didn't see a single living soul. Not a car passed. The sky got darker, and I assumed I'd been walking all day. But it didn't feel like that much time had passed. I saw the sign for Pine Lakes and had every intention of turning myself in and paying for my crime. Put me in the electric chair. Hang me from the highest tree. I welcomed it. When I wandered into town, Jack and Kathy were there sitting on the sidewalk in front of the drugstore like they were waiting for a fucking parade to roll through. I broke down and told them everything. 
They were so... understanding. I couldn't figure them out. Why didn't I see through them right away and realize something was terribly wrong? They fed me. They gave me dry clothes and a place to sleep. I lost track of time in that never-ending darkness. I pleaded with them to show me to the police station and let me begin atoning for my grievous sins. But they convinced me I didn't deserve that kind of life. They said I'd make up for my crimes in other ways, and that only God could judge me for what I'd done. Jack's plan for atonement meant working for him at the bar, performing stunts for his clientele, sexual favors, locked in a cage like an animal. I got used to the treatment, and at first I welcomed the abuse. It was about a week later when Jack unlocked my cage and said he had a present for me. A fucking present for good behavior. He let me wear clothes for the first time in days. They felt heavy and smelled of mildew. He walked me through town showing me off, telling his cronies about my sins and how I'd be held accountable. Jack reveled in his position as judge and jury, when all I prayed for was the executioner. I wondered if my walk across town was building up to something. Would they put a bullet between my eyes? Justice for Jacob? Jack held my arm tightly, painfully, laughing the whole time. You're gonna love this, he said. Love what? The streets were lined with people, more people than I'd seen in Pine Lake since I'd arrived. There were carts set up on some of the sidewalks, like food vendors at a carnival. Whatever Jack had in store, these crazy fucks were celebrating it like the 4th of July. When we turned the corner, I got my first glimpse of their church. It was like everything else in town. Peeling paint, windows shuttered, front steps covered in trash. It took a minute to realize that was where he was leading me. A throng of people stood on either side, parting for Jack as he walked me to the front door. They were a ragged lot, broken smiles for broken people. They smelled like a locker room. Walking inside, I was suddenly hit by a wall of heat. The crowd hushed as Jack walked me down the aisle like it was my wedding day or something. I looked up and noticed the bodies, dozens of them hanging from the rafters. Offerings? Punishments? Was I the next one to get strung up and dangled from the ceiling? Fine. I accepted that. I thought I was beginning to understand Jack's form of vigilant justice. Turned out I knew nothing of how deep his insanity ran. At the end of the aisle stood a large marble altar. I'm sure it had been beautiful once, but now it was covered in dried blood, large crimson patches that had stained the surface. Dead, dried flowers were spread across it, and wrapped in a dirty blanket was a small body. Jacob's body. I stared at Jack in absolute horror. They fished Jacob's corpse from the lake and brought him here. And for what purpose? To torture me? I tried to run, to escape coming face to face with my crime, but he wouldn't let me. He grabbed me by the back of the neck and pushed my face down until it was only inches from Jacob's cold body. I could smell the stink of the lake in his thin brown hair. His body was bloated, his eyes drilling into mine accusingly. Jack laughed and pushed my head down further until my cheek rested on Jacob's frozen stomach. D. 
Do you feel that? Cold. Look at him and realize what you've done. How could I not know what I've done? The crowd of spectators giggled at me behind their hands. He grabbed my hand and placed it on Jacob's stomach. He was so cold, so lifeless. A child's doll. I tried to pull away, but Jack wouldn't allow it. Instead, he pressed harder and harder until my hand sank into Jacob's tiny, distended belly. Brown water gurgled between his lips, bubbling up and over his chin, over his chest, over my trembling fingers. Filthy lake water that smelled of seaweed and mud. I screamed and screamed until my vision went black. I wanted to stay there in that darkness forever. All I could smell was the lake, taunting me, reminding me of what I'd done. When I awoke, I was back in the cage, naked, shivering. A plate of cold spaghetti noodles sat on the floor, covered in flies and pulsing with maggots. He forced me to eat it. When I vomited, he forced me to eat that as well. You wanted to atone for your sins, he said. Start fucking atoning. I've been there ever since. I don't know how long it's been. Time meant nothing to me after that day. I've been beaten more times than I can count. Raped, pissed on, mocked. Constantly reminded of why I was here and why I deserved the treatment I was getting. Eventually I stopped fighting because as fucked up as it was, and as fucked up as Jack is, I knew he was right. I did deserve it. And more. I could spend a million years in that cage and never come close to making up for what I did. I shouldn't have allowed you to take me from that place. It's where I belong. When Julie finished talking, the overwhelming silence crept in. Ted stepped from one foot to the other, unable to gather his thoughts into any coherent form of speech. Susan remained sitting on a large boulder, rubbing her arms with her hands, staring dazed into the dim red light. Ted recognized the look and knew immediately how the next few seconds would play out. Trying to intervene would only make him part of the collateral damage. You fucking monster, Susan hissed. You fucking degenerate, junkie, whore. Julie looked up, stunned by Susan's vehemence. But she didn't respond. She just told them how she killed her own child. She didn't expect sympathy and a warm shoulder to cry on. Her muscles tensed, expecting Susan to lunge at her. Every day of my life, I've punished myself for losing my baby. I've sunk so fucking low, beaten myself up, risked losing my marriage. And here you sit, telling us how you murdered your own flesh and blood like you're regaling us with a campfire story. Okay, Susie, Ted said, stepping closer. Calm down. Calm down? Were you listening to the same thing I was? Do I have to spell it out for you? It's okay, Ted. I deserve this. Don't you fucking talk to him, Susan shrieked, jumping from her rock and taking a defensive stance. You will never earn the right to talk to him ever again. Do you understand me? Never. Julie nodded and looked back at the ground. Oh, my God, Susan cried. How? 
How could you do it? That baby didn't do a fucking thing to deserve a mother like you. You disgusting waste of a human being. Okay, babe, please. Don't you think she suffered enough? I absolutely do not think she suffered enough. Not nearly enough for what she's done. Anything she's endured in Pine Lakes is too good for her. Put her at the bottom of the lake. Let her feel what her son felt. Let her be completely helpless, crying out for help that will never come. I can't even look at her. Susan, I wasn't in my right mind, Julie pleaded. Do you think I wanted things to play out like this? I don't care how you wanted things to play out. You're going to hide behind excuses? Blame your dead father on your checked-out waste of a mother? People try for years to have children, and some of us aren't so lucky. You spread your legs and bam, pregnant. All the shit you pumped into your body and you gave birth to a healthy baby boy. And what do you do? You fucking drive him into a lake and let him drown. What do you want me to say? Julie yelled, standing from her log and stepping forward. That I'm sorry? Because you'll never understand how sorry I am. Shove your sorry up your ass, you fucking pig. Susan lunged and punched Julie in the eye with a loud crack. Julie stumbled back and fell into the wet leaves, covering her face with her hands to ward off another blow. I'm not going to hit you again. It's too good for you. I just want you out of my sight before I do something I'm really going to regret. Susie, please, Ted soothed. Get a hold of yourself. We can't do this right now. We'll figure something out. I've already figured it out, Ted. We're going to leave her here to rot. They'll find her, and they'll kill her, Ted said. Exactly. Let her fend for herself. Leave her alone and scared like that little baby boy. Let them take her and string her up and use her like a piñata. I don't care. Susan, we can't. Don't you dare tell me what we can't do. That's precisely what we're going to do. And it still won't make up for what she's done. Susan fell back on the boulder hard and started crying tears of pure rage. She killed her baby boy. She fucking killed him. All I ever wanted was a child, Ted. It was taken from us. We were robbed. Why would she be allowed to have a perfect child and cast it away like a bag of trash? It's not up to us to judge her, Susie. As much as I want to, as much as I want to let you hit her over and over again, it's not our place to dole out her punishment. Let her punish herself. She's not coming with us. I can't stand the sight of her. Prison is too good. Let Jack have her. Julie curled up in a ball on the sodden ground and cried quietly. Ted didn't know if she was even hearing any of their conversation or if she'd checked out. It no longer mattered. Susan made up her mind, and by doing so, had made up Ted's mind as well. Right or wrong, Ted would never turn his back on his wife. That was one bond that couldn't be broken. The one thing Ted held on to with every fiber of his being. Their souls were intertwined, and wherever she wanted to go, Ted would follow. Susan grabbed Ted's arm and stood, testing her legs. Julie crawled back a few feet and put her back to the fallen tree. Ted grabbed his wife's hand and started pulling her away when Susan stopped, looked down, 
and spit on Julie's naked skin. Whatever happens to you, it'll never be enough. If you follow us, I'll kill you myself. Julie nodded slowly and uncovered her head. I'm sorry. Don't you dare, Susan shouted. You don't get to be sorry. Come on, Ted said. It isn't worth it. Let's go. Suddenly the silence was broken by an excited voice shouting from somewhere above. I see them, it hollered. They're in the woods down by the lake. Jesus Christ, Ted whispered. They know we're here. He and Susan ran before they had a chance to figure out where they were running to. They listened as voices called out angrily behind them, heard the sound of heavy feet pounding through the brush. They were close. Ted looked over his shoulder, worried they'd made ground. He still couldn't see them, but the sound of their approach was impossible to ignore. Ten feet behind them, a shape bobbed in the shadows, puffing loudly, legs pumping. Julie had followed. Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Who's Afraid as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at SerialAudio.com. That's all one word, SerialAudio.com, where you can subscribe to this and our other shows via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serial audio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy.